0: Be careful what you ask for. This cautionary phrase is perhaps best exemplified by the supernatural short story of The Monkey's Paw. In this W. W. Jacob's tale, the White family comes in possession of a monkey's paw via a returning soldier from India. Although the family is promptly warned of the danger of the paw which is said to grant its owner three wishes... Mr. White convinces the soldier to part with it. This is where the warning of be careful what you wish for comes into the story. Undeterred by the ominous warnings, the father makes his first wish, one for wealth, a solid first choice in my own understanding of what I would do if I ever came in contact with a magical genie lamp. Nothing seems to have immediately changed for the White family, however, But the next day, his son is killed in a gruesome accident at work. Before the grief of loss has fully set in, a mysterious man offers the whites generous financial compensation for the loss of their son, thus fulfilling the father's wish. Still distraught with sorrow, the father realizes that he has two remaining wishes— Without much hesitation, he wishes to bring his son back to life and to return to him. That night, the family hears a knocking at the door, but when they rush to open it, there's no one there. Another knock comes, and again, there is no one physically present. Fearful at what has happened, the father immediately regrets his second wish, imagining that he has doomed his son to an eternal life as some sort of ghost or zombie. Thus, he uses up his third and final wish on the monkey paw, this time wishing away his son before he can enter the house. In the end, the family realizes that the monkey's paw has brought them nothing but misery, and they ultimately throw it into the fire to destroy it. It was the summer of 1797 when General Napoleon Bonaparte returned to France after his triumphant Italian campaign. The people of France had been eagerly awaiting that return, and when news of his arrival spread, the streets became filled with cheering crowds. Napoleon had become a national hero, as his victories in Italy had brought glory, riches, and prestige to the French. As such, he rode through the streets of Paris as a conquering hero. A French soldier, Louis-Joseph Chevalier, described the scene in vivid detail, telling us that the streets were thronged with people, all cheering and waving their hats and handkerchiefs. The air was filled with the sound of music and the cheers of the crowd. It was a scene of joy and celebration, as if the entire city had come out to welcome their hero. As Napoleon made his way through the city, he was greeted by the leaders of the French government and military, the Directory, the ruling body of France at the time, welcomed him back with open arms and praised him for his military achievements. If they were being honest with the crowd, they would have admitted how fearful they were about maintaining their control over such a popular figure. They didn't let that fear show, however. As one of the members of the Directory, Lazare Carnot gushed, "'We have found our man. He is the greatest military genius of our time.'" As he rode through the streets, Napoleon took in the adulation of the crowds. His face was a mask of determination and pride, and he knew that his return to France marked the beginning of a new chapter in his life. Years later, reflecting on this moment, Napoleon would write, It was then that I realized the power of public opinion, the cheering crowds, the music, the spectacle of it all. It was a moment that I will never forget. And indeed, the moment would be remembered for generations to come as a turning point in French history and a symbol of the power and glory of Napoleon Bonaparte. Napoleon, France, and the Directory had received what they wished for, Would they come to regret it? You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This is the fourth of eight episodes in a series regarding Napoleon Bonaparte. Episode number four Coup Like an Egyptian. Napoleon had left behind the battlefields of Italy, but kept his sword sharpened for the political fight to come in Paris. The Directory was paralyzed by differences between France's political left and right, which had swung into power the year before. They decided to call him back to Paris under the guise of planning a cross-channel invasion of England. Historian Frank McLynn describes the plans that Napoleon came up with as both elaborate and spectacular. They called for 60 specially designed gunboats with the capacity to carry 10,000 men. Another 14,750 soldiers would utilize fishing boats for traversing the channel. With such a large fleet and the fear of the British forcing a sea battle, Napoleon planned out 12 different disembarkment points. While waiting for the plan's approval, the little corporal played politics, maintaining both his reputation with the mob as well as hobnobbing with the wealthy elite. But some men are not designed for the simple life. By January 27, 1798, he had already grown tired of life in Paris and decided to test the waters regarding a promotion He joked with his old friend Paul Barris, the director who had introduced him to the love of his life, Josephine, that the next logical step for his career would be an appointment as director. Recognizing that the next election season wasn't anytime soon, Napoleon let loose that his appointment would need to come after Barris, and he led a coup against three other members of the directory. While it was delivered as a joke, Napoleon was deadly serious. He just knew that he was playing a dangerous game. Mindful of his military maxim that one should always be prepared for the enemy to show up from any direction at any moment, he began to carry his own plates and utensils in order to head off any assassination attempts. His paranoia during this period grew so great that he always kept his horse saddled and refused to remove his spurs during the day. The time away from the battlefield didn't do much to solve the general's marital problems. Josephine had been caught more or less red-handed in Italy with her chosen lover Hippolyte Charles. She had pleaded with her husband to spare her lover's life and swore to never see him again. Yet almost immediately upon returning into Paris, it became known that the two had purchased a secret home to carry on the affair. Seeking to clear his head, Napoleon began a two-week tour of the invasion fleet that remained under construction. It turns out that he liked what he saw here even less than what life had shown him in the capital. Fearing that his small vessels would be unable to run the gauntlet of the English navy, he started to see the wisdom that traditional French military thinking had taught for centuries, namely that a French invasion was only possible after a victory at sea was achieved. The final straw was the fact that the naval crossing required the extra hours of darkness that winter provided, meaning that his plans were already foiled by the emergence of an early spring. In February, he informed the Directory that the invasion of England couldn't be achieved. Why had he hesitated? McGlynn tells us that his own future prospects precluded a descent on England. This was a venture fit for a political gambler, betting on a rank outsider, and Napoleon was too well ensconced to need to take such risks. He had never yet been associated with failure and did not intend to start with the channel. Seeking compromise, he offered up instead a military conquest of Egypt. McLinn writes, If he could not emulate his hero Julius Caesar by setting foot in England as a conqueror, He would rival his other hero, Alexander the Great, by winning glory in the East. He was supported by the new foreign minister, Talleyrand, who insisted that Egypt was an ideal colony, as it was closer to France than her possessions in Haiti and the West Indies, and not so vulnerable either to the Royal Navy or the rising power of the USA. Cairo was the obvious gateway to India, of which the French held a peace. The Ottoman Empire technically owned Egypt at this point, but the French ally, since the days of the Sun King, was in steep decline, and thus the holder of Egypt would be able to make a play on the whole Middle East, if they desired to. Egypt had for years now been acting as an independent nation frustrated at their inability to remove a small contingent of British soldiers who had laid claim to her soil. For Napoleon, however, the mission was just an example of real politic, as he felt that he would likely lose if he invaded England, but was assured of victory regarding an invasion of Egypt. The African nation was thus a victim of Napoleon merely needing to maintain his upward momentum. But Egypt wasn't his true objective. He kept his overall goals private for the time being, writing out the numbers of men and artillery that he would need to reach the Indus River, the point at which Alexander's armies had turned back. He then asked the directory for the materials needed for what he characterized as just a romp into the land of pyramids. The directors approved it for a number of reasons. First, they needed another victory in order to prolong their own power domestically. The crowds had loved Napoleon's forays into Italy, but now were focusing far too much on France's own internal problems for the Directory's liking. Second, they needed to move Napoleon out of the way as quickly as they could. The general had emerged as a direct threat to their power, and although most didn't know it for sure yet, Napoleon had already considered a coup d'etat against France's rulers. Third, they needed to keep the money flowing. Napoleon had convinced the directors to approve the war by telling them that it would pay for itself, plus far more in profit. The estimate needed to just set sail was a tidy nine million francs. Napoleon sent his trusted men to take forces abroad to loot the sum needed. Thus, Holland, Rome, and Switzerland paid for the entire expedition. Switzerland, in particular, did its part as Marshal Brun lifted more than 14 million francs from the nation. Even today, the word Brune remains associated by the Swiss with plundering. Beyond mere soldiers, Napoleon took with him a host of intellectuals. Mathematicians, physicists, chemists, naturalists, inventors, mineralogists, engravers, civil engineers, astronomers, geographers, poets, painters, archaeologists, orientalists, and linguists all accompanied the expedition. Their presence allowed him to hide the intentions of a conqueror, behind the guise of a civilizing mission. Just because they were covered doesn't mean that he didn't put them to work. Matthew de Sips comes up with the idea for the Suez Canal during this expedition. Napoleon's Commission of Science and the Arts even discovered the Rosetta Stone, which after it had been left behind for the British to recover, resulted in a full translation of the ancient Egyptian writing system. With the university types came 38,000 troops on 400 transports. Never willing to leave his cannons behind, the force traveled with 60 field guns and 40 larger siege guns. The entire operation depended upon the British Royal Navy continuing to ignore the Mediterranean in order to focus on the channel, Thus, the French kept the entire war party a secret. Unfortunately, William Pitt, the head of the Royal Navy, decided to act on a hunch and ordered Admiral Nelson to pursue the rumor of a mass expedition sailing out of southern France. On June 9th, the French fleet reached Malta, where the ancient Order of the Knights Hospitallers defended the walls of the capital with 1,500 guns. It took Napoleon only five days to take the island, securing for France a spectacular naval base as well as its vast treasure, some of which went all the way back to the medieval crusades. He abolished the order of the Hospitallers as well as the practice of slavery on the island before then reforming the education system and demanding equality for the island's Christian, Jewish, and Muslim populations. Only three of his 38,000 soldiers were casualties of the conflict. The Egyptian expedition had gotten off to an excellent start. Late in the evening of June 22nd, the French forces sailed past Admiral Nelson's British ships completely unaware of each other. Nelson had misjudged how far of a head start the French had had, and mistakenly passed them in a vain attempt to catch up. He was in such a rush that he ended up at Alexandria a full seven days ahead of Napoleon. Having not seen a hair of the Frenchman, he assumed that he had guessed the wrong destination and left two days before the French fleet's arrival. Disembarkment began on June 30th and Napoleon only waited until 5,000 of the 38,000 men were off of the boats in order to march on Alexandria, a city named after Alexander the Great. It took 300 French lives, but within two days the French had taken the city from its Arab defenders. Interestingly enough, Napoleon spared the city, giving strict instructions for the first time ever that there was to be no looting He greatly feared upsetting the local Islamic population, believing that rough actions in Alexandria could result in a defensive jihad being called against him. His generosity didn't help him, as his men traveled south only to find poisoned wells left behind by the Arab defenders. Thus, his men were forced to suffer a 72-hour forced march through the desert without water. When they finally came upon the Nile River, hundreds of men died from overindulging within the river. McGlynn points out that it became very clear that Napoleon had timed his invasion for the very worst part of the year. The refusal to take account of seasons or the weather was always to be his Achilles' heel as a military commander. Morale was at an all-time low. One eyewitness explained, Our soldiers were dying in the sand from lack of water and food. The intense heat forced them to abandon the limited booty that they had claimed, and many others, tired of suffering, simply blew their brains out. Still, Napoleon urged them on, to the very point of mutiny. On July 21st, Napoleon began what became known as the Battle of the Pyramids, just outside of Cairo, Egypt, with the tombs of the pharaohs as the battle's picturesque background. It was a turning point in the history of Egypt, as well as a defining moment in the career of Napoleon Bonaparte. As the sun began to rise on that fateful day, the French army was poised for battle, with Napoleon himself leading the charge. They faced a formidable opponent in the Mameluke forces, who were all mounted on horseback and armed with swords and muskets. According to historian James Marshall Cornwall, the Mamelukes were among the best cavalry in the world, and they were feared for their ability to charge down enemy lines and cut through them with their swords. As the two armies clashed, the Mamelukes charged towards the French lines their horses thundering across the desert sand. The French responded with a hail of musket fire, which cut down many of the horsemen. However, the defenders were not deterred, and they continued to charge towards the French lines. As they approached, the French infantry formed into squares with bayonets fixed to repel the charge. Historian Juan Cole describes the scene, The Mamelukes launched themselves at the French squares with abandon, only to be met with a wall of steel. The French bayonets pierced the Mameluke horses, causing them to rear and throw their riders. The Mameluke charges were repulsed time and time again as the French squares held firm. Despite the ferocity of the Mameluke attacks, the French held their ground, and their superior firepower began to take its toll. As the battle raged on, the Mamluk forces began to falter, and their ranks were thinned by the relentless musket fire. Finally, after several hours of intense fighting, the Mamluk forces were routed, and the French emerged victorious. Modern warfare had proven its superiority over the old ways once and for all. According to one account, the desert sands were stained red with the blood of the fallen Mamluks and the French victor stood victorious amidst the carnage. Historian Michael Broers gives credit for the victory to the little corporal, writing that the Battle of the Pyramids was a demonstration of Napoleon's tactical brilliance and his ability to inspire his troops to victory. It cemented his reputation as a military leader, and it set the stage for his future triumphs. The French had killed more than 10,000, while only suffering a mere 29 casualties of their own such a victory brought the french morale back from the precipice the french army soon entered the capital to begin its occupation of cairo they began as they had in alexandria even passing out pamphlets that proclaimed napoleon as a friend to muslims as the destroyer of the knights hospitallers who had been a thorn in the side of Muslims for the past 700 years. Although it wasn't approved by the directory, Napoleon declared that he was the new ruler of Egypt, assisted by a senate composed of 189 loyal Egyptian men. The first news he received as ruler, however, can only be referred to as a disaster. Napoleon had left his fleet behind in Alexandria while the majority of his forces had marched south to Cairo. Believing that the English had no clue about his whereabouts, he had left his fleet totally unprotected. Although Admiral Nelson had originally seen no hair nor hide of Napoleon in Alexandria, the dutiful officer had circled back, just in case, and sunk the French fleet. A month into the expedition, Napoleon was stranded. McLynn informs us that only two French ships survived the naval holocaust. Seeking to turn the tide of public opinion to his favor, the general merely informed his men that all great generals such as the conquistador Hernan Cortez burned their own ships in order to achieve even greater glory. Napoleon compounded the damage that the British had inflicted by firing one of his most successful commanders, Junot. The man had made the decision that now was the right time to reveal to Napoleon the full extent of Josephine's ongoing affair with Hippolyte Charles. He even took out confiscated letters which proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that the rumored tryst was very real. These were all things that Napoleon knew, however. Although he raged at his wife's infidelities, he was well informed about them. The problem for Junot was that he had told the general in front of others, and thus made the public aware of his wife's cheating ways. It forced Napoleon to put on an act in front of the witnesses, one of whom wrote that the general screamed, Divorce! Yes, Divorce! I want a public and sensational divorce. I don't want to be the laughingstock of Paris. I shall write to Joseph and have the divorce pronounced. I love that woman so much I would give anything if only what Junot told me was not true. Except he never wrote home to demand a divorce. Rather, he had his brother tighten Josephine's allowance back and forth commenced between Joseph and Josephine regarding the new financial difficulties she was facing, causing Joseph to spill the beans to her that his brother knew everything about the torrid affair. Of course, it was that very detailed letter that got intercepted by the British Navy. On November 24th, the London Morning Chronicle ran the story. A month later, it was picked up in the French press. Stranded in Egypt without a ride home, there was nothing that the little corporal could do to protect his reputation. The story had legs and continued to provide front page fodder for years. The London Gazette ran the headline, Extraordinary Intelligence, Bonaparte's Wife Discovered in the Arms of a Young Officer. It claimed that she had been caught in flagrante d'electo with Charles. The Morning Chronicle ran with the title Bonaparte's Wife, The Seduction of a Young Lieutenant. While the Times front page declared, Josephine the Unfaithful, the French army rocked by scandal. But my personal favorite belongs to the Gazetteer and New Daily Advertiser, which ran an article titled, The French Venus, more details emerge of Bonaparte's wife's affair. While the French papers were quick to defend the Bonapartes, they were forced to admit that the affair was real, merely defending Josephine as a victim of the British press. Unable to return home, Napoleon carried out his original plans— creating an Egyptian institute for schools of mathematics, physics, political economy, as well as the literature and arts. They built hospitals, sewage systems, added street lighting, irrigation schemes, libraries, windmills for grinding corn, a postal system, a stagecoast service, and quarantine stations to combat outbreaks of the bubonic plague. The French built a local printing press and began publishing two Egyptian newspapers. mclinn informs us that the amazing energy of the Egyptian Institute membership covered so much ground that their work needed several magisterial volumes to do it justice. These were published over 20 years, and the final volume did not appear until 1828. His positive work throughout the country earned him a fatwa, or Islamic Legal Ruling, that declared the French as allies of Islam. But it wasn't enough to avoid the Ottoman Empire from declaring war on the French on September 9th, with the Sultan independently declaring a holy war. A little over a month later, 250 Frenchmen were slaughtered in an ambush by Egyptian Muslims loyal to the Sultan, Napoleon felt forced to kill 2,000 in retribution. The entire situation was on the brink of exploding. He had already tarried far longer in Egypt than he had hoped to, but remained cut off with no fleet to carry him home. His situation was so dire that the Austrians saw it as an opportunity to get back into the game, assaulting Napoleon's hastily created Italian confederations, which collapsed like a deck of cards without him. Morale collapsed again after the bubonic plague broke out, claiming 17 Frenchmen a day and placing 15% of the armed forces on the sick list. Four of his officers attempted to resign, only to have them rejected by the increasingly despondent general. His time in Cairo, however, did become more pleasant after taking Pauline Fours as a mistress. Pauline had dressed as a soldier in order to get on one of the boats that made up the invasion fleet, as Napoleon had forbidden his soldiers from taking their wives, sisters, or girlfriends with them. He was among those shocked when once the ships had sailed, it was discovered that a significant number of Of the assembled 38,000 soldiers were just women tagging along for the free vacation cruise. Although Pauline initially refused the general's advances, on December 19th he clumsily spilled coffee on her blouse. He followed her into her private quarters to make amends for the accident and only emerged again two hours later. It would become a go-to move for the adulterous Napoleon. After falling for her, Napoleon decided to remove her husband from the picture by ordering a man-of-war to risk the British blockade in order to carry the man off to Paris with a nonsensical message. The decision came back to bite him, as the British promptly captured the vessel. How the British handled their prisoner is an excellent example of propaganda at work. The ship's captain, aware of the man's wife's status from spies already embedded in Cairo, pardoned the officer and sent him ashore in Egypt with information regarding his wife's affair. It took the husband a week to reach Cairo and less than an hour to discover that his wife had moved in with Napoleon in his absence. McLinn describes the scene for us, writing that he burst into the palace, found her in the bath, and whipped her severely, drawing blood. Hearing the outcry, her servants rushed in and threw the husband out. Napoleon then ordered a military court to dismiss the man from the service for conduct unbecoming. Thereafter, Pauline was seen everywhere on Napoleon's arm. The troops took to calling her Cleopatra which accurately suggested that her hold on the leader was wholly sexual. Although the affair began hot and heavy, like most romances, it puttered out. When he returned to Paris, he left her behind to become the mistress of another French general. Later, she was passed down to Junot, who was still in the doghouse for publicly revealing Josephine's cheating ways. Despite the general's public boasting, he remained married to Josephine, not that she acted like it. At one point, she received word that her husband had been killed in Egypt and reportedly had jumped for joy. That likely wasn't the reaction that her husband displayed in February of 1799, when Napoleon was informed of a vicious two-pronged attack planned by the Turks. In order to avoid being caught between the two forces, Napoleon sought to outflank them, leaving a token French force in Cairo to serve as the turtle, bunkering down in its shell, while he tore off to the east for Acre. There he hoped to surprise the eastern force before then doubling back to pull Cairo from the flames. Time was of the essence, and Napoleon's strict timetable was put off by eleven days after a protracted siege at the fortress of El Arish. Seeking to make up time, Napoleon dispensed with a large portion of his honor by executing prisoners who had surrendered under the promise of being spared. Worse, he ordered his men to save ammo thus forcing the French to murder in cold blood nearly 4,500 unarmed prisoners by way of bayonet, knives, or drownings. McLinn writes that the resulting Holocaust revolted hardened veterans who thought they already knew about atrocities. There were well-authenticated reports of soldiers waiting out to see to finish off terrified women and children who preferred to take their chances with the sharks. This dreadful massacre was one of several incidences that haunted Napoleon ever afterwards, not in the sense that he felt guilty, he did not, but because he realized posterity would judge him harshly unless he could plead compelling necessity. The punishment for his actions seemingly came from above, with the French army becoming immediately struck by plague. Napoleon, however, remained healthy and strong, suggesting that it was mere coincidence and not judgment from the heavens. Grosse's painting, titled Napoleon Visiting the Plague Victims of Jaffa, goes so far as to display Napoleon as Christ laying his hands on plague-ridden officers. Such acts were common for the propaganda-cognizant little corporal. Later, he would commission work which showed him crossing the Alps on horseback, a direct plagiarized allusion to Carthage's legendary General Hannibal. Still another week came and went, and Napoleon was no closer to meeting the first of the two armies that he had sought out to destroy. By the time he reached Acre, the British had added to its fortifications and further controlled the sea lanes around the Crusader city. The French were trapped between a fortress and an approaching army. They were sick with the plague, running out of ammo, and desperate. In Acre, he faced a determined defense led by two elite warriors. Sir Sidney Smith led the British, a man who had once escaped the prisons of France. He built up the defenses with a wall of sandbags and then proceeded to personally access Napoleon's forces by dressing up as a turncoat Turk before returning safely into Acre. Even better, he altered a captured artillery targeting message so that once it reached its intended destination, The French artillery targeted the wrong area for days. Jazar Pasha was the governor of the city and had earned the nickname of Butcher by the local populace. At one point, Pasha invited a group of French officers to a feast in his tent only to have the floor collapse beneath them, sending them plunging into a pit filled with sharpened stakes. After capturing some of the invaders, he returned them to Napoleon by tying them to the mouth of cannons. His violence extended to his own people, once agreeing to a prisoner swap, before then immediately executing his own people for the sin of having been captured. He even managed to do this before handing over any of the French prisoners. Thomas Newman tells us that there's nothing like desperation to sharpen your focus. Napoleon wheeled his army on an impossible march and managed to finally engage the so-called Army of Damascus, utilizing French muskets and artillery to destroy a 25,000-man cavalry force. The fighting lasted for 10 hours, and incredibly, the French only lost two men. He then returned to the problem that was Sir Sidney, Pasha, and Acre. Although Richard the Lionheart had been able to topple the city via bringing down the accursed Tower of the Damned, Napoleon declared that it could never be taken. The French efforts at sapping thus far had failed to bring down the walls, and they were running out of cannonballs. McLinn writes, Sixty-three days of investment and eight costly all-out attacks had all been for nothing. This was the first serious setback in Bonaparte's military career. In the three months' fighting, so far the French had lost 4,500 casualties from an army of 13,000. Worse for Napoleon was the fact that four generals were counted among the casualty lists. The earlier delays had cost him as the city likely would have surrendered without a fight if he had managed to arrive before the British had reinforced the city. While MacLynn calls it a setback, other historians are far more damning with their criticism regarding Acre. Andrew Roberts saw it as a symbol of his ambition's limits. Robert Harvey called it a significant failure, while David Chandler claimed that it demonstrated for all to see that he was not invincible. Although his defeat ought to be chalked up to bad luck more than anything else, Napoleon floated a conspiracy theory that some of his men were self-sabotaging the operation. Determined to prevent him from having a staging ground for which he could march onward to Persia and India, if he had chosen to follow in Alexander's footsteps. Instead, he was forced to beat a hasty retreat, spiking his biggest guns and hauling the sick and wounded mere steps ahead of the advancing enemy forces. That latter part wasn't his idea, as he had floated to his chief medical officer the possibility of euthanizing the sick and wounded, but his request was refused. The choice was taken away from the good doctor when the men stopped to rest in Jaffa for four days. The plague had continued to fester and they were left with no choice but to mercy kill those that were the worst off. Others were left to the charity of the oncoming Turks who didn't happen to be in a merciful mood. I'll let MacLynn describe the next harrowing portion of the journey back to Cairo a four-day crossing of the Sinai Desert. This had been an ordeal even during winter on the outward march, but now sweltering in temperature that rose as high as 129 degrees, with food and water low, a long train of wounded, and a mounting casualty list and Turkish horsemen harassing their rear, the French experienced exquisite torment and came close to outright mutiny. Finally, on June 3rd, the exhausted survivors trapezed into Katia, with its ample supplies of food and water. The Syrian campaign, in some ways a miniature forerunner of 1812, had achieved nothing, except possibly to delay the Turkish landing at Alexandria while reinforcements were sent to Acre. Casualties had been terrific, And even Bonaparte's formidable propaganda machine was hard put to talk up the doomed campaign as a glittering success. He returned to his home away from home only to find out that there had been two uprisings while he was away. It became crystal clear at this point that he wasn't going to be able to hold Egypt in subjugation but before he left, he felt it necessary to pacify Egypt. Military minds always seem to think that one last successful campaign before cutting bait and fleeing will allow them to claim victory, even if they have failed to accomplish the original purpose of the conflict. To bring the Arab nation to a heel, he organized elaborate show trials while his propaganda wing worked overtime to push out positive stories in an attempt to counter the news of his failures that were already sailing via British ships towards France's shores. He took a 6,000-man force in an attempt to prevent a British-aided Turkish landing at Alexandria. Although the French were outnumbered two to one, they again emerged victorious due to superior technology and leadership. The Turks lost at least 5,000, while the French counted only 220 among their dead. With a clear path, he ordered a ship for just himself and his most trusted officers, departing Egypt as a deserter without any of the riches or titles that he had expected. He successfully evaded the British on his return home. But here is how McLinn describes the state of continental Europe at the moment of his arrival. France faced a coalition of England, Austria, Russia, Turkey, and Naples. The Russians seemed ubiquitous in Europe. An Anglo-Russian army had invaded Holland, and an Austro-Russian army had gained control of Switzerland. A Turco-Russian fleet had captured Corfu and another Austro-Russian army had swept into northern Italy and undone all Bonaparte's work there in a matter of weeks. France was reported to be on the verge of economic collapse, and loyalist sentiment was running high. But at least he would get to see his wife Josephine again. Napoleon, of course, hadn't been around while the Directory found itself in a spiral of escalating failure, but he had demanded to take 4,000 elite troops on an overseas mission that achieved nothing. Still, it was an opportunity to begin to salvage his reputation. Before we get to that part of our story, however, I think it's worthwhile to talk about what happened to the Frenchman whom Napoleon left behind. They attempted to ask for immediate safe passage from the British, but were denied. Thus, the remaining French forces in Egypt faced a difficult and ultimately unsuccessful struggle to hold on to their large foothold in the country. One of Napoleon's top generals, Jean-Baptiste Klebler, took command of the French forces in Egypt after the Corsicans' departure. Under his leadership, the French scored some early wins against the British and Ottoman forces, including a major victory at the Battle of Heliopolis in March 1800. However, Kleber was assassinated in June 1800. The loss of his leadership immediately plunged the French forces into disarray. His successor, General Jacques-Francois Manot, lacked his predecessor's military acumen and was unable to prevent the British from forcibly taking control of Alexandria in August of 1801. The remaining French forces were eventually forced to surrender to the British in September 1801, effectively ending French control of Egypt. The Treaty of Amens, signed in March 1802, officially ended hostilities between France and Britain and recognized British control of Egypt. The French soldiers who had survived the campaign were only then allowed to return to France under a prisoner exchange agreement. But they weren't celebrated as heroes who had held on for more than a year after being abandoned by their commanding officer, In fact, many of them were seen as failures, and were subsequently shunned by society. Surprisingly, some did go on to serve in Napoleon's latter campaigns, while many others merely returned to civilian life within the new France that was completely oriented around Napoleon, the man that had left them. How they were able to manage this, despite the fact that Napoleon, even after becoming Emperor of France, never attempted to go back to rescue them, defies me. Napoleon arrived back in Paris on October 16, 1799, only to find Josephine still continuing her relationship with Hippolyte Charles. Having been cuckold again, he really truly wanted a divorce this time. Josephine's meal ticket continued only after Napoleon received advice that admitting that his wife was unfaithful now would further deplete the general's dwindling reserves of prestige, i.e. he couldn't lose both Egypt and his wife. His banker thus advised him to wait until he had achieved more power before dismissing her. Napoleon did kick her out of his house, however, along with her sizable wardrobe. The final straw had been hearing that she wrote significantly more thoughtful letters to Charles than to him. In one letter to her lover, she described her husband in the following terms. He is a man who has never loved anyone but himself. He is the most ingrained and ferocious egotist the earth has ever seen. He has never known anything but his own interests and ambition. But she was only partially right, because there seemed to be some legitimate love for Josephine in his small heart. Desperate to hold on to her lifestyle, she appeared on his doorstep frantic and crying. Napoleon allowed her kids to come meet with him, who pleaded their mother's case for her. Eventually, Napoleon relented, and the next morning was found in bed with his wife. Although I am always one to wish a couple's happiness, the biblical figure of Javin reminds us that love can sometimes be magic, but magic can sometimes just be an illusion." The public support that underpinned the legitimacy of the Directory was also an illusion, one about to crumble. The state was virtually bankrupt, hyperinflation had set in, and war profits had ceased. What happened to all of the outrageous sums that Napoleon's Italian Wars had raised? Nearly all of it disappeared into the deep pockets of the Directors, whose corruption was legendary. It was clear to all that the government wasn't going to last long. McLinn points out that there were three groups hoping to place the mantle of rule upon their heads once the directory toppled. First were the monarchists, who held on to hope that they could crown a relative of Louis XVI. Second were the Neo-Jacobins, who currently controlled the Council of 500, the closest thing to a legislative branch that remained in Paris and the third contender were the Thermidorians, who wanted the status quo to remain firmly in place. Three of the five-man directory belonged to this faction, the leader of whom remained Paul Barris. Barris had played a substantial role in Napoleon's rise. He had even introduced him to the love of his life, Josephine, who had initially served as his own mistress before the director had pawned her off to the general. In fact, it was the newly restored Josephine that helped steer her husband towards supporting Boris in the coming political fight. Now, to be clear, Napoleon had options here. He didn't feel obligated to help his former friend. There were no IOUs or understandings between the two men. Boris, on the other hand, had no choice but to enlist the popular general to his cause, which had always been himself. Joseph Sirius had begun a widespread whisper campaign against Boris. Sirius was one of those types of people that all of us ought to be afraid of. He had risen to power after betraying Georges Danton, the Minister of Justice, and then later Robespierre himself. When asked what he had done during the terror, he merely replied, I survived. These individuals who will do anything to anyone in order to survive are among mankind's most dangerous. Bonaparte sent one of his most loyal captains to tell Barris to summon forth the army of Italy to wipe out the royalist faction, as well as the French most ancient of enemies, the British. Historian Frank MacLynn tells us that Napoleon had appeared to have accepted his role as Boris's sword, thus preempting an alliance between the directors and any other general, while holding himself aloof from the direct fray, so that it could never be said that he had once again put down a rising of the people of Paris. It was to be a coup, carried out with rapid efficiency in the middle of the night. It became known as the 18th Brumire for the night in September that it was carried out. It would mark the end of the Directory, the ruling body of the French Republic, and the beginning of a new era of authoritarian rule under Napoleon. The country was plagued by economic problems, political instability, and social unrest. The people had lost faith that the Directory, which was unabashedly corrupt, was capable of addressing the issues the general wrote in his memoirs, I saw that the time had come to put an end to the disorders and to establish order, to restore the public spirit, to give the nation a strong and permanent government. Now keep in mind what we talked about in our first episode, namely that Napoleon didn't identify as French. At his core, he remained a Corsican nationalist, but he had had a taste of power, to the point that Corsica was no longer enough of a prize for him. Eventually, not even dictatorial control over France would be enough for a man whose name still adorns a complex where one's ambition is presented as a domineering attitude designed to overcompensate for one's shortcomings. Almost immediately, Napoleon decided to cut Paul Barris out, after the director had claimed that he had no tolerance at all for the coup. He then privately allied himself with Emmanuel Joseph Sirius, the survivor who had previously tried to have Napoleon shot upon his arrival back from Egypt. I told you that survivors are among the most dangerous because of their willingness to do anything. In this instance, however, Two such dangerous creatures had emerged at the same time in the same location, destined to eat each other alive. They were joined by Charles Maurice Talleyrand, a former foreign minister, because everyone who has studied history knows that a triumvirate works best for an alliance. At dawn on September 18, 1799, Napoleon and his troops marched on the Tuileries Palace, the exact same palace that had seen revolutionary mobs descend upon it in order to arrest King Louis XVI. The targets this time were the remaining members of the Directory. They had been forewarned of Napoleon's plans and had ordered troops to be stationed around the palace to protect them. Boris was confident, remarking to observers, I see that Bonaparte has tricked me. He will not come back. It is finished. And yet he owes me everything. The armed guards, however, weren't a problem, for when Napoleon arrived, the popular general managed to convince the troops to join his cause and turn against those that they had been sworn to protect. Historian Alan Forrest points out, ...that it was a mere promise of bonuses combined with the general's reputation for how rich his army of Italy had become beneath his rule. Bonaparte then ordered the arrest of the targets, as well as several members of the Council of Ancients... ...the new upper chamber of Parliament wholly composed of ancient men all over the -the kick-the-bucket age of forty. The soldiers burst into the meeting room and arrested the politicians were subsequently taken to a nearby military barrack. The coup had been carried out without bloodshed, neutralizing the leaders of the old regime before anyone had broken their fast. The journalist Louis-Marie Prudholm was an eyewitness to the coup, writing that the public was tired of the Directory and the parties. The people demanded a strong government. From the very beginning, the focus was on Napoleon. Prudholm wrote to his readers that Napoleon has become a sort of demigod in the eyes of the French people. They see him as a man who can bring order out of chaos and restore France to her former glory. The directory had become corrupt and ineffective. It was time for a change, and Napoleon was the man to bring it about. Another eyewitness, General Argerwal, later described how the soldiers had responded to Napoleon's call to join his cause. I told them that if they wished to save France, they had only to follow the general. They all cried out, Vive Bonaparte! Although it is easy to assume that he had committed the coup for his own self interest It is possible that Napoleon had fooled even himself with his intentions. His first letter to his brother Joseph, who was at the moment serving as the directory's ambassador to Madrid, suggests that his actions were well intended. Keep in mind that it is to his brother that he confided the most in. Thus, if he ever were going to spill his true feelings, it would have been in this correspondence. Instead, Napoleon justifies his actions by stating, I have taken power solely for the good of the country and not for my own interest. I am convinced that I can restore order and prosperity to France and am willing to do whatever is necessary to achieve that goal. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowery at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look in the show description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.